0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to Paul's epistle to Titus, about midway through your New Testaments, Titus, and we'll be this morning in chapter 3 as we continue on in our regular uh, series of sermons through the book of Titus, we'll be this morning in verses 3 through 7 of Titus chapter 3. Please follow along as I read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Can I ask that we pray once more? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, by your spirit, please assist us now to not only comprehend, but to appropriately apply the truths of this passage. Thank you for these words. Thank you that they are true. Thank you that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words. Please, Father, now come and edify us through the exposition of them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The ordinary regimen of preaching in this church is what might be called expositional preaching, which ordinarily takes the form of verse-by-verse exposition through books of the Bible, seeking to set forth the basic meaning of the passage and applying it to God's people. That's the method of preaching we pursue here at Emanuel Church. Now, if you commit to preaching through books of the Bible, you don't always get to preach what you would choose to preach, but must submit your preaching agenda to whatever the next passage is in the book under consideration. And this is a very good thing. It allows the burden of the inspired biblical writers to take precedent over the burden of the particular preacher. And of course, happily, the content of the given passage under consideration can often merge with a particular pastoral burden of the preacher, and happily that is the case this morning. My purpose this morning is to expound verses 4-7 through in particular of Titus chapter 3, and in so doing, I'd like to speak to a subject that is of significant pastoral and theological concern to me. I want to preach to you this morning on the nature of Christian salvation, and particularly the nature of the new birth, And I'd like to endeavor to answer the question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? I believe there are some here who do not understand the answer to this most important question. Uh, Furthermore, I fear some of us who are truly saved have not properly appreciated the Bible's perspectives on the nature of our salvation and can be greatly helped by the perspectives of this passage in Titus 3. So my aim in this sermon is to help us see Christian salvation as something far more vast and far more grand and far more comprehensive than we tend to see it. My fear is that in our context, in the Bible belt, that our view of salvation is often too small. Uh, People will often ask the question. Are you saved, or when did you get saved? And we often reduce the meaning of salvation down to something like the four spiritual laws or asking Jesus into your heart or walking an aisle and praying a prayer or when we decided to finally get our act together and join the church. And none of these things comes within leagues of the biblical definition of Christian salvation. The Bible's definition of salvation is so much richer, so much more expansive, so much grander than popular notions of what it means to, quote, get saved. And my fear is that many in our cultural context have imbibed an extremely shallow view of salvation, which I believe can be fatal, because a shallow view of salvation and the new birth will produce shallow Christians. And just a generation on from that, it can produce a whole generation of false professors, which is already a very present spiritual crisis of mammoth proportions in the West. If we are, number one, to be truly saved ourselves, and number two, to appreciate and experience the richness of spiritual life intended for those who are saved, we must come to appreciate what salvation actually is according to the Bible. And thankfully, happily, this passage in Titus 3 can help us perhaps as much as any other passage in the Bible. And these verses, in verses 4 through 7, form one complex sentence uh, with many subordinate clauses. I don't want us this morning to get lost in prepositions and commas. I want us to stick with kind of the main thrust, the main flow of the passage. So I've decided to divide up the passage under four main headings. And This will frame our consideration of these verses this morning. Four main headings, and they are these. We'll consider, first of all, the source of salvation. Secondly, the ground of salvation. Thirdly, the means of salvation. And fourthly and finally, the goal of salvation. The source, the ground, the means, the goal. Consider with me, firstly, the source of salvation. We read in verse 4, after... Paul identifies himself and all of us indeed as sinners who previously had been enslaved to sin, had been in bondage to sin, had been disobedient, led astray. He says, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The source of salvation, very plainly, is understood to be the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Now, that salvation has its origins in the love of God is a common theme throughout the Scriptures. It's expressed in a number of places, perhaps most famously in Ephesians chapter 2. If you were to read Ephesians chapter 2 alongside Titus chapter 3, you'd recognize pretty quickly the parallels were quite striking, quite remarkable. Ephesians 2, of course, begins with those words about how we, all of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we're sons of disobedience, we're children of wrath, we're enslaved to sin. But then we read in chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, in other words, as a quality of God's being, He's rich in mercy. Interestingly enough, this is the only reference to God being rich in anything. God is said to be rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have that idea in more concise language in our text in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now the word appeared. Is a very important word in Paul's letter to Titus. We saw it in chapter 2. The word is the Greek word from which we get our English word epiphany. Like the the dawning or the shining of a light. It's like a revelation. It's an appearing. And this appearing here in chapter 3 verse 4 is again understood to be a reference to the coming of Jesus and His accomplishing of our salvation. Temporally, Paul has in mind the coming of Jesus in history to save us. But more than that, he has in mind its personal application to us who are in Christ. In other words, there came a moment in time when he saved us, when he washed us and regenerated us and renewed us and justified us. Redemption was accomplished at the cross in history. It was applied in our experience when he saved us. So the grace of God appeared like an epiphany. It shone forth like a revelation. It appeared in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God as redemption was accomplished. And it appeared to us in time in our own lives as redemption was applied to us personally and experientially. But now this is the larger point Paul's conveying here in verse 4. The larger point which we're meant to see. And that is that the coming of Jesus on our behalf was predominantly an expression of the love of God. The coming of Jesus was not principally a reflex of God's justice. It was not principally a reflex of God's holiness or His judgment. Now, all of these qualities are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ as well, but the coming of the Son of God into the world is seen as the ultimate expression of God's goodness and His loving kindness. It is chiefly His love that appeared in Jesus Christ. So how do we know that God is good? How do you know that? How do you know that God is good? The most convincing proof is that He sent His Son to save us. How do we know that God is loving? The surest demonstration is the Father's giving up of His only begotten Son so that we may be saved. Now, children here this morning, I I trust you've learned a great deal, hopefully, about who God is. Hopefully, you've learned some in your Sunday school classes. I know with the pandemic, we're not doing Sunday school right now. We'll get back to that eventually. But hopefully, you learned in your Sunday school classes a good deal about God, and hopefully, in sermons here at church and in your home setting with your parents, you've learned some things about God. Uh, Maybe you've learned that God is all-powerful. God has all power. Maybe you've learned that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. That God is everywhere present. That God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man, and He can be present everywhere at once. Perhaps you've learned that God is holy, and God is just, and God is righteous. Perhaps you've learned that God created everything, and everything we see God created that. He's the creator and he's the sustainer of all things and perhaps you've learned that God is sovereign over everything and that he orchestrates and rules over all the affairs of this world. Now kids, you may be wondering, perhaps the thought has occurred to you is you've developed your ideas about who God is. Perhaps you've wondered, is God loving? Or perhaps you've asked, how can I know that God is loving? Well, the answer, of course, is that God is loving. And the way in which we can know that God is loving is that He sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world on our behalf. He sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners like me, such that anyone here who comes to Him in repentance and faith can be saved. We call that the gospel. And it is a demonstration of the love of God. How do we know that this God who created everything and rules over everything is a loving God? We know He's a loving God because He sent His Son to be a Savior for sinners like you and me. That's the surest demonstration, the surest proof that God is in fact a loving God toward sinners. You who have been walking in the faith for many years, you've known the Lord perhaps for a long time. How can you know that God is loving? How can you know that God is still loving toward you? Some of you are in very hard and very painful circumstances. Some of you are experiencing very difficult trials, very challenging, very hard, very difficult providences. And, and the question may occur to you, does God still love me? Has He forgotten about me? And you're searching for some evidence, some proof that God is indeed loving toward me he hasn't forgotten about me. Though there's so much pain and hardship and trial in my situation, I want to know that God still loves me. Well, where can you find a demonstration of this? Where can you find proof of this? You can find it where it was first found. You can know that God loves you, that he still loves you, the proof that he still loves you. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is found in the fact that God sent his own son to die for you. My friend, of course God loves you. He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not with Him also freely give us all things? You can know God loves you because He didn't spare His own Son for you. He poured out His wrath on His only begotten Son to save you from your sins. Now listen, that doesn't explain why there's so much pain and hardship and trial in your life. But it says something definitive about God and that is that he's loving, and he has given the most convincing demonstration, the final proof of his love, in the sending of his only son to die for you. Do you need proof that God loves you? Can you say with that old song, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. What is the source or origin of our salvation? Paul says, it is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Now consider with me, secondly, the ground of salvation. If the source of salvation, which is the love of God, that's where our salvation originated, where it springs from, now consider with me, secondly, the ground of salvation. Look again at verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So so there's a strong negation followed by a positive affirmation. What is the ground of our salvation? Well, first of all, Paul says, it is not works done by us in righteousness. That that is a a program of obedience to a set of commands, be they man-made or given by God himself, no one gets to heaven, listen, no one gets to heaven based on good works or righteous deeds. Now who thinks that? I mean, who actually thinks that they can get to heaven by their good works or by their obedience to the law or by righteous deeds? Well, there were certainly those in the first century who thought that. You might think of the Pharisees, for example. Who believe that they could establish their righteousness before God, they can put themselves in a place of favor with God by strict adherence to the Mosaic law. And and most of the Pharisees would have had the attitude, perhaps, of the rich young ruler we talked about last week. They would have said, Well, I've I've kept the commandments from my youth up, I've kept the Mosaic law, I've kept the Torah. And to them, this word comes by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified. We aren't saved by works done by us in righteousness. Perhaps we might think also of some in the Cretan context. Uh, Do you remember what was said of the false teachers who were harassing the Cretans in chapter 1 earlier in our series? Those false teachers we read in chapter 1 devoted themselves to Jewish myths and what else? The commandments of men. And perhaps they were teaching that if you follow these commandments that we have stipulated here as your teachers, you can achieve God's favor and you can come into a place of righteous standing with God if you adhere to these commandments. Now, we would be fools to think that efforts to establish one's own righteousness by obedience to the law were limited only to those in the first century. The effort to establish our righteousness before God by our own works is a perennial problem. You might think also of medieval Roman Catholics on the eve of the Reformation who believed that they could achieve the favor of God, some sort of merit before God, by a system of penance and confession and attending to the Mass, the Eucharist, and and, and carrying on these sorts of rituals. Uh, could somehow achieve some sort of standing before God by adhering to this sort of religious formalism. Friends, you might think also of casual nominal Christians in our own day who who, who think that they are right with God because, as they would say, their good outweighs their bad. Look, I've basically lived a good life, and, and and therefore God will accept me. I wonder if you've heard of Ray Comfort? He's an evangelist, and he he goes around, at least I I think he still does this, he goes around to like college campuses and to downtowns and all of that, and and there's a camera, and he's got a mic, and he he interviews people, and he asks them all kinds of probing spiritual questions, and what he most often asks is, um, if, if you were to die tonight, and you were to appear before God, and he were to ask you, now why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And almost every time, The person being interviewed says something about their own good deeds. Well, I think I've been basically a good person. I've not done really much harm to anyone else. I think my good outweighs my bad, and 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 so that's why I think I'll be accepted into heaven. That's not just what most people out in the world think. That's what most what what most people who profess to be Christians actually think. So so you could imagine this sort of scene on Judgment Day. I don't know if Ray thinks this is actually how it's going to go. In fact biblically speaking, I don't think this is how it will go, but you could imagine the scene on Judgment Day. Let's just entertain this for a minute. Uh, God interviewing each one who comes before his bar, and here comes the Pharisee, and he asked the Pharisee, now, why should I let you into my heaven? What does the Pharisee say? Well, I've, I've kept the Mosaic law from my youth. I, I kept myself pure. I kept myself clean. Here comes the medieval Roman Catholic This one says, I I did the works of penance, I said the Hail Marys, I went to confession, I took the Mass, I took the last rites. You have the casual, nominal Christian in America, who then comes up and says, well, I've been basically a good person, my good, has that weighed my bad? Now, no one gets into heaven with any of those testimonies. You know that, right? But why is it? What did they miss? What did all of those different groups get wrong It's this, that no one is saved by works of the law, by deeds done by us in righteousness. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, by deeds of the law, no one shall be made righteous. In other words, the grounds of our salvation is never allowed to be what we have done. We don't achieve merit or status or favor with God on the grounds of our own good works. And I would just encourage you, my friend, put this question to your heart. In what do you hope before God? What are you standing on in your relationship to Him? If you were to appear in that sort of scenario before God and He put that question to you, now how would you respond? Why do you hope that you're going to go to heaven? On what basis, on what grounds do you hope to inherit eternal life forever with God? Put this question to your own heart. Well, that's the negation. We are not saved because of works done by us in righteousness. But what then positively is the grounds of our salvation? And we read very clearly, verse 5, that we are saved according to His own mercy. That's the ground we're standing on. It's not our works. It's not deeds done by us in righteousness. It is only the undeserved mercy and favor of God by which he freely grants full pardon and redemption to sinners. And this removes all grounds for boasting, save in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. As we sang in that song, we will not boast in anything, no works, no power, no wisdom. We will boast in Jesus Christ. His death is his resurrection and what He has accomplished for us is an expression of the mercy of God. And indeed, all true Christians know, in their heart of hearts, that they have been saved, that they are in Christ only by virtue of divine mercy. And, and, and I would suggest the most mature Christians know this and feel this most keenly. I am who I am because of the unmerited unearned mercy and grace of God and God alone. And Paul wants these Cretan Christians to understand this. Don't ever forget, don't ever get wrong ideas about how you were introduced into this Christian community. Don't don't ever get any wrong notions of how you became an heir of eternal life and how you became right with God. Don't ever think it was because of works or deeds done by you in righteousness. It was only by the mercy and favor and condescension of God by which he visited you and came to needy sinners like you and brought you into fellowship and in relationship and into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the ground of salvation? Paul says it's not works, but divine mercy. Now consider with me thirdly, the means of salvation. The source of salvation is the love of God. The ground of salvation is the mercy of God. Now consider with me, thirdly, the means of salvation. What is the means of salvation according to this passage? Look with me at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The question we're asking is what is the means of salvation? That means how is it that someone is saved? What's the means? How is it that we are saved? The answer, clearly, the second half of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a few different ways to understand this phrase, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Some see the washing of regeneration as one thing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit as another thing, as two separate events. In line with most commentators, I understand it as describing one event, uh, one event with, we could say, two outcomes or two main effects or two main results the experience or the event Paul is describing is what we call the new birth. We often refer to it as regeneration or conversion. So, if you're not familiar with Christian language or biblical language, just a little clue here. When we use the word new birth, that's an exact synonym in our language to regeneration. It's another word we use regenerating, re being born again. Uh, regeneration, new birth, conversion all synonymous terms in the Bible and in theology. Now, I want to preach these words, the second half of Titus chapter 5, but I want to bring in some material from outside of this passage. And the reason for that is, I think this is an area where we as a church need to grow, particularly in our understanding of the new birth, Uh, what our understanding of the new birth actually is. We need to grow in our understanding. We need to come to, I think, a a better appreciation for what actually happens when a person is born again, when a person is regenerated. So I'm going to bring a little more material than just what's in this passage. The new birth is a work carried out by the Holy Spirit in the human heart. It is the means by which sinners are saved and enter into the kingdom of God. It brings about a fundamental change such that the individual sinner is washed and cleansed of sin and given a new nature. The new birth is God's work, not ours. The new birth is God's work, not ours. So folks in the back can hear me. The new birth is God's work, not ours. God, by His Spirit, does the washing and does the renewing. The new birth is a work carried out by the Holy Spirit in the human heart. Now, the actual mechanics of the new birth are somewhat mysterious. Uh, That is, how it is that God does this, precisely in what way He does this. The new birth is God's work, but exactly what that washing looks like, how exactly it takes place is a little bit mysterious to us. And sometimes this work is even imperceptible to us. Someone could be born again and not quite know it, not quite know what exactly has happened to them, what they've experienced, at least initially. But we do know that the new birth, according to Scripture, involves at least two things. It has two effects or two outcomes, and these are expressed in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. First of all, we have the washing away of sins. In the new birth, there is a washing, a cleansing that takes place. When a person is born again by the Spirit of God, God undertakes by the Holy Spirit to wash that individual, to cleanse that individual from every stain of sin. We have that in our passage in verse 5, by the washing of regeneration, by the washing of new birth. In John chapter 3, that great passage where Jesus introduces to Nicodemus the the idea of the new birth. He says, we must be born of water and the Spirit. There's a a washing that takes place, we need to be cleansed through the new birth. And then there's a second effect or a second outcome or a second result of new birth. And that is that we are transformed, we're made new by God's Spirit. We're given a new nature and a new will. That loves God and trusts God and hates sin. To be born again is literally to become a new creature. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. To be born again is to undergo a fundamental transformation of being at the heart level. That's what we mean when we speak of the new birth. Though the actual mechanics of the new birth are somewhat mysterious and can even be imperceptible to the individual as they are taking place the new birth ultimately can be discerned by its effects. How do you know if someone is born again? I can't visibly see the new birth. That's why I say it can be imperceptible. Someone could be born again in the context of our meeting this morning. I, I can't see that exactly. But 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 we can perceive the new birth When it's taken root in the heart of a person by the effects it has on their lives. So Jesus, when he's talking about the new birth in John 3, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't see it, but you see the effects of it. We had a lot of wind this week. There were some rainstorms this week and some tropical storms the week before. Well, if I looked out my window, I I can't see visibly the wind but I can see the effects of the wind. There was a big limb in my yard that actually fell over and broke into a bunch of pieces. I saw the effect of the wind. I saw the wind blowing in the limbs and in the leaves, and I could see little bits of trash on trash day blowing down the road. I could see the effects of the wind. That's the, 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 the analogy Jesus draws with new birth. You can't see the new birth happening, but you can see the effects of the new birth. So it is with all those who are born by the Spirit of God. They're transformed, they're regenerated. So radical a change takes place on the fundamental heart level that they go from being haters of God and being indifferent to God to being lovers of God and His will and His truth, from being enslaved to sin and lovers of darkness to being lovers of light, lovers of righteousness, and those who seek now to mortify their sin. You can see, you can discern the effects of new birth. Titus 3.5 teaches us that to be saved is to be born again, to be regenerated and to be made new by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, what we must appreciate is that salvation involves so much more than a human choice or a casual decision. It is the supernatural work of God in the human heart to turn a sinful rebel into a faithful follower of Christ, It is literally to be regenerated, to be born again by God's Spirit. We need to appreciate again that salvation on the most fundamental level involves a total transformation of the human heart. It is not so small a thing as walking an aisle and praying a prayer. Those things can be a symptom of the new birth, but they are not the new birth. Someone can be born again. And be so moved that they want to make some public demonstration of their newfound faith and they can walk an aisle and pray a prayer. But that's not salvation itself. That is not the new birth itself. The new birth is something God does in the human heart. And it is not ultimately the product of our decisions. It is not a matter of saying a prayer or signing a name on a card or in the front of your Bible. The new birth is affected by God. It is his work and it is an internal work done in the heart of a person, just a, a, an illustration of something of the breakdown that that, that, that I'm concerned about to, to preach into in this message. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was uh, at another church visiting church, and um, I was there with a friend. And the service was fine; everything went well. And um, at the end of the service, they had one of these things. Maybe some of you have been in these sorts of contexts. Every I bowed, every head closed. I'm sorry, every, every, maybe they want every head closed. I don't know. Every eye closed, every head bowed. And um, okay, if you've been moved today and if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, and uh, raise your hand. No one else is looking around. Just raise your hand. Okay, I see you. I see you. I see you. Okay, great. You know, we'll, we'll follow up after. And, um, and then after the service, I went back to the home of this family that was hosting me and my friend and I could tell th- the wife was especially interested in getting my opinion about the service. What do you think about the service? And she kept sort of bringing it up and asking me questions. And um, look, I, I'm with family now, okay? And so I'll be more open about my perspectives, but I can behave myself out there in those sorts of contexts. And so I was trying to be sweet. I enjoyed the service. It was basically edifying. Uh, but she kept kind of, it seemed like she wanted to draw something out of me, and so um, Later on in the afternoon, she asked again, and so I said, well, look, so I was really blessed by the service. I was edified. I don't know that I would have done that bit at the end about, um, you know, every eye closed, every head bowed, and trying to, to, to move people toward a decision and something like that. I just think that's yielded really bad fruit in, in America, and um, it, it might mistake something of what actually goes on in the heart of a person under conviction, and um, it, it might diminish the internal work of of God's Spirit, and, and verbatim, this is what she said to me, but how will you know if they've been saved? Now, think about that. How will you know if they've been saved? If you don't do some sort of altar call or, 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 or thing like that. Now, I didn't say this then, but I wanted to say it. If that person has passed from death to life, and out of darkness into light, and has been born again supernaturally by the Spirit of God, I'm pretty sure they'll come back next week. I'm pretty sure we don't need to kind of capture that mojo in a bottle or something like that. Now, now, I'm not trying to be crass or trying to straw man, you know, this, this, this other way of doing things, but I think it should be of real concern to us. What are we saying about what actually takes place in salvation? Is it a casual decision that we make? Well, I, I should get my life together and I should, I should go down. I should sign the sheet. Or are we calling on God to do something far grander, Far more total, far more bold, far more comprehensive, to actually reach down into the heart of a person and transform them supernaturally by His grace and by His Spirit. I'm very fearful we have cheapened the grace of God and and pervade a view of salvation that is shallow. And it's producing shallow professions of faith. And in the worst case scenarios, it's producing false professors. We must return to a biblical understanding of salvation. Salvation involves nothing less than new birth by God's Spirit. By supernatural regeneration by which a person goes from being dead to being alive. Kids, there are many graveyards in Winston-Salem. And we can do this. And maybe your parents can take you to do this. If you've ever stood before a grave, you can think about this. Um, here is... is uh, Mr. Jones' grave, and you're standing in front of the grave. Can you imagine saying before that grave, All right, Mr. Jones, let's go. Rise up. Let's run over to McDonald's. Well, how absurd that is, right? What are the chances Mr. Jones is going to rise out of the grave, right? That something so supernatural would have to take place. Something so surprising. Something so unexpected. Something so grand. That's the picture God uses to describe what He does in the heart of a sinner. He raises them from death to life. It's not a matter of praying some sort of set prayer, some sort of sinner's prayer and asking Jesus into our hearts. Brothers and sisters, what sort of superstition has overcome us that we think through some sort of canned incantation We can somehow capture the grace of God in a bottle or something like that. We are saved only by the supernatural work of God, by new birth, by regeneration, by God's Spirit. Ultimately, the means of salvation doesn't rest with us, it rests with God. The new birth is a work of God. And this work of God Paul says in our text involves a washing from sin a cleansing from sin a renewal by the Holy Spirit we are forgiven cleansed washed of all our sins and we are transformed by the power of God's Spirit through the new birth now let me just clarify I'm not saying that in the process of salvation that that human choices aren't involved our salvation does involve volitional choices We must choose to repent of our sins. We must choose to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we must choose to follow after the Lord Jesus. But here's the point. No one makes that kind of a choice apart from the antecedent work of God's spirit, the prior work of God's spirit within them. Why would someone ever choose to turn from the sin they so dearly love? Why would they choose to put faith in a God that they don't want to know or worship or follow? God must first do a work in that heart. This is why we often say regeneration precedes faith. No one has faith. No one decides to follow Jesus unless God's Spirit does a work in that heart, changing them, transforming them, causing them to be born again, to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Let me just linger here for a moment longer, okay? Why does this matter so much? Why is it so important that we get this right? I think we need to appreciate that when we're witnessing to lost people, when we're praying for our lost friends, when we're praying for our children who don't know the Lord, we're not praying for them to make some sort of casual decision. Do you want to go to hell forever, or do you want to go to heaven with Jesus forever? Well, I want to go to heaven with Jesus. Okay, great, you've been saved we must recognize that we're asking God to do something far greater than that. We're asking God to transform our children. We're asking God to grant new birth to our neighbor. We're asking God to bring conviction upon hardened sinners and then to transform them, regenerate them by His Spirit. I think it's important for we as a local church to understand this. As we seek to preach the gospel and seek to witness to our community, we're not trying to somehow rig or manipulate the system such that we manufacture decisions or something like that. We're asking God to do something that only he can do and that he is pleased to do under the preaching of his gospel, that he's pleased to do in the hearts of men and women, in the hearts of sinners. God does grant the new birth and that should fill us with hope. But what we're after is something far more than getting someone to sign up on our petition or sign up on our sheet or, you know, the doors of the church are open, come on down and and, and join the membership. We must look to God for something far greater. Actual heart transformation on the most fundamental level. I think this matters too, brothers and sisters. We ought to look inward at our own lives. And we ought to ask ourselves, have we been transformed like this? Have have I been born again? Maybe there's someone here you're realizing salvation is something far greater than I appreciated before. Have I really experienced this? Or was it really about me just kind of getting my act together and and, and signing up for churchy stuff? Do, do, Do you believe in your own heart, my brother, my sister, my friend, that God has caused you to be born again by His Spirit? Now listen, I said earlier the new birth can be imperceptible to us. I'm not asking you when did you have some sort of mystical experience where a light shone around you and you sang just as I am 20 times and had an emotional experience where you came to Christ. That's not what I'm asking you. I think there are many genuine professions of faith, genuine testimonies where people can say I can't name the hour of the day. I just know God did a work in my heart and I see the evidence of it. I encourage you, look Look. Look for the signs of new birth. Look for the effects of new birth. Do I evidence in my life an actual transformation? Has the wind of God's Spirit blown in my heart? Are the effects manifest? Have I been transformed by the grace of God? Do I love sin or do I hate sin? Do I love God or am I indifferent to God? Do I love God's people or am I indifferent to them, cold to them? Look to these evidences of the work of God's Spirit in your own heart. I'm not trying to create in you any unnecessary anxiety, but I do fear we live in a climate that propounds a very shallow view of what it means to be a Christian. And with nothing but sincere love for your souls, I'm urging you to put this question to your own heart. Have you experienced the new birth? I'm not asking for a date. I'm not asking you to produce a piece of paper. I'm asking you to look at yourself and to go before the Lord And to discern, has this work taken place in my life and in my heart? What is the means of salvation? It is new birth by the Spirit of God. Consider with me, fourthly and finally, the goal of salvation. The source of salvation is the love of God. The ground of salvation is the mercy of God. The means of salvation is new birth by the Spirit of God. Consider with me, fourthly, the goal of salvation of salvation verse 7 so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life why is it that God saved us he saved us so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life what was the goal in God saving us It is, first of all, that we would be justified, that we would be justified sinners in his sight. Now, in other places in the New Testament, especially Romans and Galatians, the doctrine of justification is opened up by Paul in greater detail. Here he just mentions it, so I'm not going to expand very much on this doctrine now. But I'll just simply say that to be justified is to be rendered right with God the result of salvation through the new birth is that former rebels and sinners are reckoned to be right, to be justified before a holy God. God justifies the wicked, as Romans 4.5 says. He pardons their sins and counts them righteous in His sight. Justification is a judicial rendering that one is righteous in the eyes of the judge. Now, if you have ever in your life experienced true conviction over your sins, it is almost impossible to imagine something more wonderful than that. Now, now it does get more wonderful than that. But, but, But if you have ever seen yourself as a sinner, someone deserving of the wrath of God, something vile, something dark, something deserving of God's punishment, and then you learn that God justifies the wicked... That, that, that God is no longer my enemy, but my friend. That I'm no longer guilty before a holy God, but that I'm, I'm right with Him. I'm safe with Him. He, he counts me righteous and pardoned and forgiven. That is the source of the most extreme relief and anxiety in people who know themselves to be sinners. That I am not God's enemy. That I am not under God's wrath. And this is said to be the result of salvation we are justified. We're counted, we're reckoned to be right with God. Think of what that would have meant to these Cretans, these liars, these evil beasts, these lazy gluttons. They were enslaved to sin, they were rebels against God, they hated others and they were hated by others. Now they're said to be justified in God's sight. All those sins that mark their lives, all their present sins, all their future sins, forgiven, pardoned freely by God pleased to make this declaration, you are right with me. You're not under my wrath, not under my judgment, but in a place of favor with God. And then Paul goes on, he says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've been regenerated, we've been justified, and the goal is that we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heir is a uniquely suitable word here. You know what an heir is? It's someone who's been named as one who's going to inherit someone's estate or some future possession or something. You name someone as your heir. We're said to be heirs. And I say it's a uniquely suitable term because it so well captures the situation we're in. We have been named heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which means... We look forward to the future possession of something grand and something wonderful, namely resurrection life forever with the Lord Jesus. We don't have it yet. We we don't have possession of it yet, but also in a sense, it's already ours. Kind of like if you've been named as an heir to like your parents' estate. Well, it's yours legally. You have a legal right to it. It's been pledged to you. You, you. You have a seal of it, but you're waiting for the future possession of it. That's the position we're in. We're said to be by regeneration, by the salvation of God, by justification, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We look forward to the future inheritance of eternal life forever with God, but we enjoy now something of the possession of it. We're presently, in a sense, partakers of it, but we look forward to having our future inheritance. And you can, again, imagine what this meant to these Cretans. To go from a place of being an evil beast to being an heir of eternal life with God forever. That is what salvation accomplishes. That is what Christian salvation brings about. It has its origins in the love of God. It is grounded in the mercy of God. It takes place by means of new birth and regeneration and its goal is to have a community of justified sinners who are named heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My friend, my final word to you is this. Don't have small thoughts, shallow thoughts of what it means to be saved. The Christian vision for salvation is bold. It is radical. It is supernatural. And it does bring people from death to life, from darkness to light, from being an evil beast to being an heir of the hope of eternal life. To to those of you here who are Christians and, and, and followers of the Lord Jesus, we should just appreciate something more of the richness of what God has done for us by grace, what God has made us to be, and it should fill our heart with motivations to love him and to worship him and to follow him, to recognize what he has actually accomplished for us. He has caused us to be born again, to be washed, to be renewed by the Spirit of God. I have been totally changed by what God has done on my behalf, and that should change the way we think about our lives. It's created in us a, a new zeal for wanting to please the Lord and follow the Lord and worship the Lord and honor the Lord with our lives. We've passed from death to life. We've been born again by God's Spirit. And for those who are not Christians those who have not experienced something of the new birth, the wonderful news is this is who God is. He freely grants the new birth to all who ask. To anyone who would come to him in repentance and faith, this is Christian salvation. When we appeal to you to come and to embrace the Christian gospel, we're not calling you to something trite and small and casual. We're not trying to get you to sign up for Christian programs or something like that or to fill out a card, or to commit to tithing week by week. The Christian vision of salvation is bold, it's radical, it's awesome, it's grand. This is what it means to be saved. To be the peculiar object of the love and kindness and goodness of God, through his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the new birth, such that you become a justified sinner before a holy God, and an heir, to eternal life forever in paradise with the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, forgive us of having small thoughts of your grace and your mercy, of your love. Convince us afresh of the gospel. And of the grandeur and vastness of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray that it would be the experience of everyone here. That they would be regenerated by the Spirit of God. That they would be renewed, would be changed, would be born again. We pray that everyone would receive the status of a justified sinner. Reckoned right in the sight of the God who is. And be given the inheritance of eternal life as a son and a daughter. To be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Father, we pray that preaching of the new birth. That the gospel of salvation in Jesus. Would sound forth from us. But not only from this congregation. But from congregations throughout the world. We pray that there would be no cheapening of your grace pulpits across the world, we pray that, that you would deal in your providence and in your grace a blow against shallow views of your salvation, producing meager Christians and false professors, or that the true, pure, unadulterated gospel would go forth to sinners that they might be saved, that they might experience something of real supernatural heart change that is present in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to this gospel. Thank you for making so many of us partakers of this gospel and those who have experienced real change through the Holy Spirit. We pray that that would spread to more and more in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.